it's understandable that when we come on a retreat like this, we have many ideas or concepts about how the retreat should unfold. And it's understandable because if we didn't have some sense of what a retreat like this can offer us, we wouldn't be motivated to come. So there's some wisdom in that. But it's really important as we're actually doing our practice to distinguish between what we might call long-term aspirations or goals and shorter term, in the moment kind of intentions. Because if we if we're practicing with some kind of fixed agenda, some kind of ideal about what practice should look like, what each day should look like, I'm two weeks in now, or I'm eight weeks in now, and I should be where by now, you know, these, these ideas that we have, it's actually going to really uh, impede our ability to be present because through that, what, what we end up doing is a lot of comparing and judging, discriminating our experience constantly. And I think it's actually almost impossible that our experience ever lives up to these vague ideals that we have created for ourselves about practice and our experience. So even though we may have um, a long-term aspiration for ourselves, for our path and our practice. Beautiful and wholesome uh, intentions of creating more freedom, cultivating happiness, peace and calm and equanimity, and recognize that there is a process, a path that we can walk to cultivate that. All we can take care of is this moment. All we actually can do is be here right now, and that's actually the best thing to do, to be here present for this moment. And then we can accept and surrender to whatever the process is for us. When we're caught up with these ideals or agendas, it creates a tension in our practice and in our experience. We, we limit and control and judge and evaluate constantly everything that we experience. It should be this way, it shouldn't be that way, I want more of this and less of that. And we can just, it, it can lead us into subtle or not so subtle states of aversion. When it's not subtle, we're in really in aversion and judging and contraction and frustration. The hindrances can just play out that I spoke about the other night. But even the more subtle forms of um, expressing this sense of agenda can really affect our practice. And that's where there's just a, a, a sense of efforting that comes in. Joseph spoke about this the other night. Um, a sense of pushing the practice. Even as subtle as inclining in a, in a, in a, a controlling kind of way, want leaning into the future, trying to have practice be a certain way can create a lot of um, difficulty, actually be an impediment to the practice unfolding. I saw this for myself when I was doing a, a retreat over at the Forest Refuge, and I was doing anapana, mindfulness of breathing, to develop concentration. So it's a very simple practice. But after a number of days, even a week or so into the retreat, 
I realized that I actually had an agenda about being with the breath, that I was only being with the breath so I could get concentrated, and that with almost each breath, I was looking for something different to be happening, wanting experiences that would validate my practice, that would be signs that something was deepening, that I was having um, these experiences that lead to jhana, to absorption. And when I noticed this, I saw how much tension there was in the body and the mind that I'd previously been unaware of. I'd thought that I was sitting there relatively happily being with the breath. But as, as I started to tune into this and notice what was going on, I saw how much tension and constriction this agenda was creating, this kind of leaning forward into my experience. And it was actually a relief just to let that go and just to let the breath be the breath, to be with the breath just for the sake of being present. I really understood that uh, Zen teaching or practice of to sit just to sit rather than to sit to get somewhere. So it was a big wake-up call for me. But I see how I, I know I and many of us do this so often. Through our perceptions and projections, we try to control and manipulate experience in ways that are usually unsuccessful, but it never stops us from trying. Because when we're on retreat in this very unusual situation, in silence, the simplicity of the practice, not a lot of distractions, not a lot of the usual restraints or even reference points available to us, we get very sensitive. And in that sensitivity can often lead the mind to engage in small or large acts of distortion of reality. (laughs) You may have known this phenomenon before. We call it yogi mind, where, uh, as I said, because we're a little, we're not in our usual mode and moment after moment, hour after hour, just with our experience, things that otherwise mightn't have bothered us loom really large in our experience and can really both be blissful, but often very disturbing to us, very problematic. The, the classic example is what we call the window wars, where you know some people like the window open and fresh air and other people are cold and want the window shut. And it's taken IMS years to develop the window policy, which is these windows are open this amount, and those windows are not open. If anyone plays with that, I don't know how many notes we get as a result of that. It's like, now this is how we deal with it. And it, it uh, operates all throughout the retreat. The, the classic example, actually, the, the biggest one that I've heard of that still makes me smile whenever I think of this story, I heard this as a true story that on one retreat, the managers got this note from a yogi and the note said, you know, dear managers, I've noticed as I'm out during my, doing my walking practice that there are a lot of planes flying overhead <laughs> and they're making a lot of noise and disturbing me. Can you write to the airport and get them to change the flight paths of the planes so that I can do my walking practice in silence? So as I said, a slight distortion of valuing and uh, the reality of situations. This is yogi mind.
If you notice thoughts of this nature happening for you, where there, as I said, this wanting to control the environment and things being very disturbing, really helpful to start to question this role of perceptions and projections. Asking the question, do I know, you know, how do I know this is true? This is a reality. And learning to uh, work skillfully, practice with this whole realm of the, our experience, where on one end we're in views and opinions, and on the other end we're learning to come more into contact with the truth of things, the Dhamma. This is what we practice here for. There's a whole gray area in there where many of us actually lose our way. So our practice is really refining that and getting to know when we're actually in that world of projection, lost in views and opinions, and when we're actually coming to know the truth, the truth that leads to freedom, leads to ending of suffering. A little while ago, uh, Guy and I actually had our 20th wedding anniversary, and he asked me what would I like to do to celebrate, and what I said I would like to do was to go and see the Body Worlds exhibition that was on down in LA. We live in San Francisco in the Bay Area. So we had to, you know, make a trip down there so to celebrate. We went to see Body Worlds. Some of you obviously know what this is. For those of you that don't, Body Worlds is this uh, ex exhibit, this huge exhibit, that's a result of this man's work called um, Plastination, where he's developed this technique of embalming corpses and what they do is somehow drain all the fluids from a corpse. These are presumably willing subjects <laughs> at some point to this, hopefully. <laughs> they drain all the fluids and put this plastic fluid in that enables them to then do autopsies, so they dissect the bodies in all kinds of ways, but it preserves them and they can pose them and these bodies are preserved with um, all different ways of exposing, whether it's the organs or the circulation system or the nervous system or skeletal system or different diseases, and their whole bodies arranged in you know, all kinds of poses. The reason that I, w I came up with the idea of seeing this was it's a very traditional Buddhist practice to do these death contemplations, to contemplate the bodies, to do it at your 20th wedding anniversary, I don't think it's so traditional, but um, it was just the timing was right. And I was actually inspired to do it because I'd, again, been on another retreat at the Forest Refuge where I did the practice of investigating the 32 parts of the body. And I didn't have a teacher because there's not many people who teach it, so I kind of had to teach myself. But just as uh, luck would have it, someone had left the catalog of this exhibit in the library there. and I just chanced upon it. It was the perfect thing for this retreat. So I took it and just studied it and just really became very familiar with these photographs of all of the different bodies and all their different states um, from the exhibit. So when I went down there, it was interesting to see instead of kind of seeing them as corpses, they were kind of like old friends because I'd studied them so much. Oh, there's this guy and oh yeah, there's this. And in being at the exhibit, I also saw again this, the role of perception and projection, how people were there for very different reasons. 
There are a lot of um, school teachers there with young children, taking them as almost a biology uh, exhibit. Families were there, old people were there, young people were there. And just to hear different people's reactions. I mean, these were dead bodies that we were looking at, real dead bodies. Not many people get to see a dead body. And to see how, I know for myself, I could go between seeing them as a dead body, as a human, just like me, but now dead and with everything revealed. And all of these, I mean, you could see it as quite scary or gory or whatever reaction you might have. And then just seeing it as an object, kind of getting interested in it scientifically or biologically or as a meditation practice, and feeling how different my response would be depending on my perception in that moment. And it would change as I went from object to, to object, from re really from person to person in this exhibit. And being around all these different people, it was a very popular exhibit. You know, the common experience, experience response I would hear, especially from teenagers, was kind of like, ooh, that's gross, you know, as they looked at organs and blood and, and bones and decay and teeth and things like that. And people just trying to relate to this experience. And I could see how, again, you, you, they actually try to dehumanize the bodies in some way. You know, they, they always took the hair off. But there are some that really had, you know, they would put them in very lifelike poses. And it was very disorienting to relate to these corpses and know how to respond in a skillful way. And as I said, could just see for myself. Sometimes I could take it in that these were people just like me. And at times it was too much. It was too much to be surrounded by these hundreds of different bodies of people who were once alive. And it was just interesting to play with my perceptions as I went through that exhibit. So this, this quality of perception is very important to look at in our experience. I also recently read this interesting book called The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. It's a very funny title for a book because it's a very unusual book. It's uh, written by a guy who worked a lot with autistic kids. And so he wrote it supposedly from the viewpoint of a young autistic boy, very bright boy. Who, but it was interesting to see the world through the eyes of this young autistic boy. And uh, this boy, as a lot of autistic children or people have, didn't have a lot of emotional overlay on his experience. It was very logical as the way he responded to the world. Unfortunately, the world and people aren't very logical usually. And so he would get into trouble as he tried to apply his sort of logical rules to the world. And one of the things I remember is he said in it, he could never understand why people went away on holiday because he said, there's so much to see right where you are because he would get so fascinated by the most minute details of his experience. And there was one part of the book where he described seeing a field with some cows. And his description of field, a field with cows was to describe each cow and the kind of shape of black and white they had and how big they were and which way they were facing and what they would, it's like incredible detail, which most of us would just say field cows. And that would be the end of it. Just to see these different ways of relating to experience and to perception. Being on retreat, you can kind of relate to this, no? 
how you can just get fascinated by a bowl of oatmeal or a lizard or a leaf and just see all of the nuances of that experience to recognize this is a change in our usual perception. Because most of the time, all of the time, we're actually filtering, we're, we're, we're actually receiving huge amounts of data from the outside world, but we're filtering and ignoring vast amounts of that. And even though this is happening most of the time unconsciously, there's actually a process that we've been con we're, we've, that's a conditioned process in that filtering and ignoring what we're choosing to notice and what we're choosing to ignore. Luckily, most of the time it is unconscious. It would be too much. But um, this process of what we choose to notice has a Buddhist term called sanya or perception. And in Buddhist terminology, this literally means the recognizing or naming of things. So it's a very simple meaning, but it's incredibly important in the Buddhist teaching because of this fact of how we choose to notice, what we choose to notice, and how that very perception changes our experience, changes our experience of ourselves and as our experience of the world. Because we think that what we're experiencing is the truth, is reality, is the way things are. And we only have to read a few movie reviews or hear people describe something that we've also experienced to know how distorted that perception of the truth can be. Have you, you know, ever been given a recommendation to go see a movie by a friend and you go see and you know, what were they thinking? This was terrible. Or that these days so many critics just completely diminish or ignore the amount of violence in a movie and just say, this is such a great movie and the director had such a fantastic idea and there's so much liveness and uh, excitement and they don't mention, you know, the torture scenes or the, the gruesome. To us, that's, it's just unbearable. They just have no sense of that. This is all this filtering of perception. Once we start to recognize how powerful this process is, we we'll really um, need to start questioning. Do I know that this is true? What I'm experiencing, how I'm relating to something, is it based on actual reality? Or is it the result of my filtering, my perceptions or my projections? There's a great teacher, many of you may know, she's not necessarily a Buddhist teacher, though many of her teachings have this, um, have deep Buddhist truths at the heart of them. Byron Katie, she does something she calls the work, and it's very interactive with the people she, she does this with. I actually had the good fortune to meet her many, many years ago before she was really famous, and she would come to Spirit Rock because a lot of the people who worked there knew her and would invite her, and she'd work directly with the staff with just a handful of us, so it was great to get to know her, and she's really um, quite famous now. She, she, and she's great because she's very down to earth, even though she's, had, she's quite an awake being and, and uh, very enlightened in her interactions. And she, but she calls, each other, calls her, the people she works with all the time sweetheart and honey and dear, and is, is very uh, familiar with people. And she'll say things like, honey, how do you know this should be happening? Because it is. Just deal with it. One of, her, one of her books is called Loving What Is. It's a big um, 
thrust of the teaching is just, this is what's happening. Can I know it? And in that knowing, what do I know that's really true about it? Can I surrender to this? So she has four questions that are at the heart of her work. And the first one is to ask, is it true? It's a great question. But the second question is, can I absolutely know that it's true? So it's like, first question, we go, yes, it is true. But she comes back with the second question is, can I really know that this, tr this is true? And then she asks, how would you react? No, how do you react when you think that thought? So what, what happens to me when I hold that this is true? And then what would I be without that thought? So she both pushes us to question whether what we're experiencing is true and then see how holding this to be true, to be the way it is, affects us. It's a story we tell ourselves. And she then she plays with that. She hit whatever you say to be true, she says, reverse that. What if it's not true? So I think John should understand me. Can I really know that that's true? How do I know what John should understand? I, I can't know, really. When she really pushes you, you have to say, well, no, I, I really don't know that John should understand me. But then she ha reverses it, where you have to say things like, I should understand John, or John shouldn't understand me. It's just kind of playing with our perceptions of how we take things to be. Very helpful for us just to challenge, again, our assumptions. Because once we start to quieten down a bit, a number of you have spoken about this in the interviews the last few days, we start to notice this ongoing running commentary about our experience, about how things are, about how things should be, about how things shouldn't be, about how I am, about how it is. It's just endless. And we feel impelled to know what we think about everything we experience. As though we're expecting someone to tap us on the shoulder and say, what about this? What do you, we're ready with an opinion about what we think about this. We're always ready for that. And so we're always judging and comparing and doing the what if. So there's this situation and then there's, and what if? It gets worse or it gets less or I let go or I hold on or this happens. I, it got to, and we ta have a simple experience and make a big deal about it. On one retreat, as I noticed this tendency in myself, I actually started to make a note of it for myself. And that was DQ, drama queen. It's just and anything that happened, it was like, <gasps> you know, what, and what would happen next? I, I can remember this so clearly. I had this funny twinge in my arm. I can still remember that it was an unusual experience. It was a kind of little nerve vibrating, very sharp uh, thing that I experienced. And I remember noticing it because I was very sensitive. And then the next, right on the heels of the noticing was, what if it's bone cancer? <laughs> And it was just a twinge in the arm. But the mind leapt to this dramatic explanation of what's going on. And again, sitting here at IMS or Forest Refuge, can't remember, hearing this big explosion, big noise, you know, probably just a door closing. But my immediate response, I'm from California, and I've been in a big earthquake, was, it's an earthquake. And even, you know, the next second, I knew it wasn't an earthquake. But the mind still played out the fantasy of what if it was an earthquake? You know, what would I do? Where would I go? Where are the exits? We just play up these experiences. There's this tendency that we can have to make the most of everything.
playing up out uh, fears and anxieties, making everything dramatic. And there's a certain pleasure we get from that. Have you noticed that, of making a big deal of things? I, I have friends that it's like, that's their life, going from one drama to the other. For me, I would find it exhausting, but we all do it in some way or another. I have a, a friend who was going on a, 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 a fasting cleanse with his son, and as part of it, they had to take this, um, what do you call it, this cleansing liquid that you drink regularly on this fast. And these things aren't often that pleasant, but they would call each other up to try and support each other. And the son would say, it's disgusting, it's terrible, I can't bear it. And my friend would just try to counsel him and say, can't you just see it as 10 seconds of unpleasant? But no, it's disgusting, I can't bear it. And it's all how we relate to these experiences. My mother was a, um, a very gentle and sensitive person who loved animals. She was a real soft touch. She was always accumulating stray cats. And my father isn't an animal person and didn't have want anything to do with them and always grumbling and grouching about this fact. And a while ago, my mother managed to acquire this very unappealing fat old tomcat. Actually, he wasn't that fat when he came, but by the time she got through with him, he was fat. But he was a tomcat, all beaten up and scratched up. And when he landed at my old house, he knew he was onto a good thing. So he stuck around an outdoor cat. She managed to catch him and get him neutered, but he wasn't that friendly. He would come up and he'd purr and you'd pet him and then he'd, you know, claw at you. He was one of those kind of cats. Well, my mother died a number of years ago, um, but the cat didn't. So there was the cat and my father living with each other. And my, my father still managed to feed the cat, but that was about it. So I went back one year and there's the cat, still there. But I see on the cat this huge lump, the base of its spine, just before its tail. And I said to my dad, what is this lump on the cat? And his dad goes, oh, I know, it's this big tumor. It's terrible. Everyone comments on it. I should do something about it, but I can't. That big old cat, he scratches me. I don't want the cat, the big tumor. And oh, he's going, oh. <laughs> and you know, all, I spoke to all my sisters and brothers. Oh, yes, the cat, the big tumor. I'm sort of, OK. <laughs> I'm the one that's going to have to deal with this grumpy old cat and this big tumor, because I'm kind of the animal person in the family. So I start making friends with the cat and scratching it under the chin and kind of feeling, you know, <laughs> what is this? And after I, I realize that what it is, this cat is so fat that it can only lick a certain part of its body and it just licked and licked this big pile of matted hair <laughs> up the base of its spine. And I got a pair of scissors out and cut it off and sort of went in. This is the tumor of the cat, this is gross lump of hair. But it was, you know, when you see something like that, your idea is it's a tumor. This, and no one, you know, they couldn't get close enough to see and investigate what is this really. It's not what you think it is. And often on retreat, energy in the body, we can get convinced it's a block. You know, I've got this whatever in the body, this tight energy, this hard energy, this moving energy, and it's this, and I, my project on this retreat is this energy and how to work with it. Azupandita would say, it's just sensation. And I, you know, I don't mean to diminish, sometimes there are energies and we can work with them skillfully, but if we make them into this big thing, 
then we actually create an unskillful relationship with what's just energy in the body. So really, again, looking at experience and seeing if we can be a little more in touch with its direct nature, not our projections about it. And of course, we can have optimistic fantasies or projections, you know? Ever had that good sitting and you know that the next moment enlightenment's around the corner or you wish you had an interview that day so you can go tell your teacher because it's just about to happen and if you just had a little tip, a little bit of instruction and then it would all just unfold. And you know, the, the, the famous scenarios of some exaggeration of some, you know, the novel you're about to write or the play or the piece of artwork or the poem. It, the mind takes it and makes it a huge deal about these experiences. And a big one that we do a lot of projecting and, and filtering through is other people. Notice that? Why did they do that? What are they thinking? What, what's going on there? Don't they know? What, what about that? And as soon as we start relating in that way to other people, I know I've seen this on retreat. Then I start worrying they're judging me, you know, and, and feel, oh, so-and-so is avoiding me. You know, now, did I do something to offend them? Have I upset them? Was it that day when I turned the light out or turned the light on and they didn't like it? And we can ha have these whole relationships created in our minds out of nothing. You've probably all heard the term VRs. Vipassana romance where, you know, out of the silence, we don't even know someone's name and we have a relationship and get married and have kids and even get divorced and we haven't even spoken to them. Well, we can have the opposite of VVs, Vipassana vendettas, where there's just someone on the retreat, poor unknown person, and for whatever reason, and there can be usually some causes here and there, all of our aversion gets kind of funneled on to this person. And it can just take over, where it doesn't matter if they stop doing whatever they were doing, or it doesn't even offend us so much anymore. We've gotten used to it, but that energy is still there. All through this process of conditioned perception, all through only choosing to notice what's wrong, and not being open to notice what's neutral, or even what's pleasant or wholesome about this person. Sometimes through this distortion of perception, it's not so much that we create stories, but we just actually, there comes an imbalance. We lose touch, we're, or we're so in the moment, we kind of lose the big picture. Have you noticed that too? And one kind of example is this, of this, again, on retreat here, and you know, really quite deep into my practice, being very mindful, and it was a morning, we have eggs, those, and there's always a lot of energy around those mornings, and getting a piece of toast is usually the most challenging thing for me, lining up. But, so I remember going with my bowl to get a piece of toast, s putting the toast down, and then you have to stand and wait with everyone else. And so I remember I had my bowl, standing and waiting, and just standing, put my arms down by the side, and then someone nudging me. And I, was just, and I looked down, and I'd forgotten that in my bowl I'd already put a few spoonfuls of yogurt. So there I was, standing quite mindfully, waiting for the toast, with yogurt dripping all down my legs. And I also remember just looking at it and having no idea what to do. It's like, oh. Luckily, someone next to me ran and got some paper towels and wiped it up, but it was, 
I had no idea I had yogurt in my bowl, and I had no idea when I put it down. I had no idea it was there, and then I had no idea. And it's just, we, this can happen on retreat. So just to, again, remember, it's not that we need to be so minutely in the moment. There's a perspective, a, a relationship to experience that's helpful to come back to again and again. But as we tune into the power of perception, one of the things that it's uh, really interesting to see is that it's possible to use this function of the mind, this perception, in a skillful way that we can actually change our perceptions out of wisdom, out of direct connection with what's happening. And so we can intend to perceive things in a certain way. This has to be done skillfully, of course, but then we see what happens. And really just to say that our whole metta practice, all of the Brahmaviharas, are a little bit about this shifting of perceptions, perceiving what's good, perceiving happiness or beauty. Hanasaro Bhikkhu, who's a, a monk, uh, an Ajahn, has a monastery outside of San Diego. I teach with him uh, at the DPP retreats, told this story about how when he was practicing intensely, he had this experience for months of the body feeling solid. And at first it was okay, but then it became quite difficult, this feeling of hardness and solidity in the body. But he was just feeling thinking he was being mindful of it, just practicing day after day with this feeling of solidity. Finally, he went and told his teacher about it, and the teacher just said, oh, you're focusing too much on the air, earth element. Focus on the air element instead. And he went back, sat down, did that, shifted from the earth solidity element to the light air element, and he said, immediately that whole perception of the body as solid and rigid and hard and painful and difficult just evanished, just evaporated, just through that shifting in perception. So of course, as I said, we've got to do this skillfully. If we, if we feel we should experience something a certain way or someone tells us it should be a certain way, there's a contraction there, there's a, that beautiful agenda that I spoke about in the beginning. This intention has to be done out of wisdom, out of connecting with those wholesome qualities, and then being willing to see what happens. It may not, our perceptions may not shift that easily, but just to be open to the possibility and to recognize it takes some clarity to know this and to do this practice. And it also takes uh, equanimity to just be with what happens. Sometimes the intention or the shifting of perception is actually a not doing. It's more like what I spoke about at the beginning. It's a letting go of an agenda and coming back to perceiving in a, in a very unmanufactured uh, way what's here. So again, to play with this. Another teacher I found helpful in um, learning about working with perception is Ajahn Brahma Wangso. He's an English bhikkhu who has a monastery in Perth in Western Australia, teaches very deep states of concentration and jhana. And he talks in one of, one of the talks I found very helpful, he talked about what he called subha sanya. So sanya means perception, and subha means beautiful. So beautiful perception. And the story he told was that when he was doing very intensive practice as a monk, he was very motivated, so one of these A-level efforting type of people, and he was just convinced he was going for it. 
And he did. You know, he said, and I would sit, and I would huff, and I would puff, uh, puff, and I would breathe, and I, you know, he would get to a certain level of concentration. But it would always break. At some point, he couldn't sustain that level of effort, and he would just fall apart and get frustrated and 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 agitated and aversive, and then real, you know, I've got to do it. I'm really, I'm the old enlightenment or bust kind of scenario, and go at it again and get to the same place again. After a while, I think it took him quite a while, he realized this wasn't going to work. And so he had to look at what his experience was of, in this case, the breath. He was just simply working with the breath. And he realized that his underlying attitude to the breath was that it was boring. And he saw that to stay with the boring breath, he had to really force his mind to keep coming back because Subconsciously, he, it was boring. He didn't want to be there, anything else but that. So he had to do it through force of will. And he realized that it would never work, that he couldn't achieve the continuity of practice that he wanted with that attitude of the breath being boring. So he developed this relationship to the breath he called the beautiful breath. To actually come to delight in the breath, to focus on the pleasant, even beautiful qualities of the breath, so that they, the breath actually was became an invitation to be present, that it was delightful to pay attention to the breath. So that I, I really learned a lot from his teaching on that we can't force ourselves into the present moment. It's it's, you know, we can do it for a certain time, but the mind will always resist it at some point unless there's a degree of, whether it's pleasure or acceptance or equanimity in the being in the moment. I was doing, again, a period of concentration practice at the Forest Refuge and found this teaching helpful. I was doing what they call casino practice where you, you, you can meditate on certain colors or discs or colored objects. Um, and the one I was choosing was blue, blue casino. It's a, quite a challenging practice, and I can't say I got very far with it at all, but even in beginning it, you know, just think blue. Like, and we, what they recommend is to get a blue disc, so I got a blue zafu. It wasn't a very appealing object. I would look at this blue zafu. <laughs> So I had the idea, I remembered uh, Subhasanya, I thought, well, what's the most beautiful blue that I know of? And I thought of that beautiful turquoise blue of a tropical sea or a swimming pool. And I just started to make that blue the object of my meditation. And as I said, I can't say that I excelled at it, but it, it, made, I, I, it made it appealing. I, the rapture started to come just from changing the perception of the blue. So just to see how this might work for you. This, this uh, question of attention and what we're paying attention to, and especially on focusing on the beneficial or the wholesome aspects of our experience and letting go as much as possible of the projections and concepts about what we're experiencing. So there is simply being with experience is called, in Buddhist terminology, yoniso manasikara. And this word, can, the, this term can be translated as wise attention, or skillful attention, or appropriate attention. 
the, the meaning of the word yoni means womb. So it's kind of a safe, uh, a protected place. And manasikara is attention. So it's a safe or protected place to put our attention. What this term means or defines, it doesn't define what we pay attention to. It doesn't say these objects are good and those objects are bad, these experiences are good and those experiences are bad. But it, it talks about noticing what happens when you pay attention to these objects or these experiences. And if in paying attention to them, wholesome states of mind develop, like peace or equanimity or interest or calm or, or concentration, then that's wise attention. If you find what's developing is aversion or greed or um, wanting or frustration or irritation, that's unwise attention. So it's asking us to stay in touch with what happens as we pay attention. And we've been emphasizing this throughout the teachings in this retreat. So we're really tracking our process, tracking the mind states that we have. And out of that noticing, being willing to change. Change what we're paying attention to, or even change how we're perceiving that experience. And learning that we can do that is actually an incredibly important part of our practice. That we're not stuck in a single way of relating. As conditioned as that way of relating may seem to be for us, there is the possibility of changing. And so we can see or learn that something that previously was irritating to us, like someone coughing or rustling a lot in the meditation hall, can be very irritating a lot of fidgeting, a lot of noise or whatever. And if we view it in that way, irritation and aversion can arise. If we can shift our perception and hear it just as noise or recognize that someone's suffering in some way and that's what's causing those sounds to happen, then perhaps compassion can arise. This is an example of changing our perceptions of things. I think I mentioned in my earlier talk about uh, this retreat I was on where I was struggling a little and had doubt come up and all the hindrances arise. And I you know, said that thing about, I don't want to look at this roof anymore. And I also remembered I was really hating my yogi job. And it was a good yogi job, but I really hated it. And I you know, just filled with aversion. I, I talked about these um, practices that I did just briefly. I, I did Meta for Self. And I did gratitude practice. I did gratitude every morning, making a list of the 20 or so things that I was grateful for in my life. And after a while, I just memorized that list. And I just repeat it to myself. The first sitting that I did, just go through that list. And it just shifted the energy for the day. And in the evening, I would remember five things that I was grateful for that day. And just doing those things really shifted um, that aversion that I was feeling. One of the other practices I did was um, not complaining. This is a big one to bring into being on retreat. I actually learned it from Guy. Uh, he tells his story that's, that I'll repeat, he, that I could use his story, that he heard from someone else. Um, 
about this, uh, I think it was a Zen monk who had a student who was quite an um, agitated, frustrated person, and they would come in and comp complain about stuff and be very aversive to things and irritated with everything in the Zendo and always wanting things to be different. And so this monk gave this person a practice, and he said, your practice is whatever happens to you, you have to say, thank you very much. I have no complaints whatsoever. <laughs> so this person went away and tried this practice and came back next week and said, this is a terrible practice. Why did you ask me to do this practice? It doesn't do anything. Every time I try it, I think, this is stupid. I don't want to do this anymore. Why did you give me this practice? And the monk said, thank you very much. I have no complaints whatsoever. <laughs> and the student got it. And so I tried doing that. Every time I'd notice the mind start going, I don't like, I don't like my, I hate Brussels sprouts. And look at all these Brussels sprouts I have to chop, or whatever it was going on about. Thank you very much. I have no complaints whatsoever. Or even just to say, don't complain. So much energy goes into what I call complaining. And I could see when the aversion was up, the frustration was up, that was a lot of the way the mind went. And just those series of practices really altered my experience in this retreat. It's a great practice to bring up. So Yonisomarni Sakara is about appropriate attention and then our appropriate response. The suttas, in the suttas there's a passage, the wise one who hurries when hurrying is needed and who slows down when slowness is needed is happy because her priorities are right. So it's all about that. It's not about fixing things or seeing things a certain way. It's appropriate attention and appropriate response. So the Buddha talked about this quite a lot, about appropriate, uh, wise and unwise attention. There's a, a great sutta, one of the early ones in the Manikaya, uh, called the Sabasava Sutta, all the taints, where he talks about an untaught, ordinary person. And that's us most of the time. And what we do is attends to those things that are unfit for attention and does not attend to those things that are fit for attention. <coughs> so because of unwise attention, we do, we, we, uh, I'll, go in. I'll, I'll read from the Sutta. What are the things that are unfit for attention that this person attends to? They are, they are things such as when they attend to them, since sensual desire arises and sensual desire increases. The taint of being arises and the taint of being increases. And the taint of ignorance arises and the taint of ignorance increases. And what are the, th the things that are unfit for it? These are the things that are unfit for attention that they attend to. And what are the things fit for attention that they do not attend to? They're the things such as when they do attend to them, sensual desire does not arise. An arisen sensual desire is abandoned. And the taint of being doesn't arise. And the taint of being that has arisen is abandoned. And the taint of ignorance doesn't arise. And the taint of ignorance that has arisen is abandoned. And so 
by attending to the wrong things, we create the confusion of the taints, of the taint of sensual desire, of, of, of the taint of becoming or lusting after existence and creating new sense of self, and the taint of ignorance or delusion. Out of this wrong attention, confusion arises, and this is what the Buddha says happens. This is how one attends unwisely. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What did I become in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what? What shall I become in the future? Or else one is inwardly perplexed about the present thus. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where will I go? Any of those thoughts arisen for you? <laughs> and out of that, all these different wrong views of self arise. This is what we do. When we attend unwisely, confusion arises. We get propelled into these states of questioning and confusion. We're projecting into the future. We're lamenting the past. Wise attention brings us back to the moment so we can connect with what's really happening, what the truth of the moment is, as much as possible without all of these layers of filtering and projection and perception. As I really think that wise attention is the practice of metta for oneself. It's actually being kind to ourselves through paying attention to what cultivates beautiful qualities of mind and heart and being willing to notice and work with skillfully those tendencies of mind to dwell on what creates strong sense of self, what creates a sense of separation, what creates aversion or judgment or comparing. Noticing that, noticing if we stay dwelling on those experiences, those kinds of thoughts, that's where we end up. And that we have a choice. The powerful thing about mindfulness is, again and again, it gives us that opportunity to come more and more in contact, in alignment with the truth of things, and make a choice. To see the power of filtering and projection. And not to say that we can stop that. This is happening all the time. It's a process that's one of the, the aggregates that we'll talk about in upcoming talks. But we need to see the role that it's playing and more and more see if we can have perceptions and create relationships to our experience that allow these beautiful qualities of mind and heart to develop. Sylvia Borstein, one of our loved friends and colleagues at Spirit Rock, says again and again that her main practice is what will help me to be present with a clear mind and an open heart. Just as simple as that. And so in each moment can be looking to see what will help me to relate to my experience with a clear mind and an open heart and to be willing to notice the tendencies of mind that lead us in the other direction where we get tight where we get contracted, where we get aversive or frustrated. There's a list that the Buddha, one of the wonderful lists that he likes to make 
of the 10 things that are always helpful to contemplate, always factors for wise attention or wise recollection. He says, he actually goes through each of them and says one thing, so it's a list of 10, but he starts one thing. When developed and pursued, it leads solely to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to self-awakening, to liberation. Which one thing? Recollection of the Buddha. And then goes on to say the same for recollection of the Dhamma, the truth of things. Recollection of the Sangha, the support of like-minded community. Recollection of your own virtue and your own generosity. These are helpful things, wise things to pay attention to. Recollection of the devas, these celestial beings, because they're in celestial realms, because they have developed beautiful qualities just like you're developing. So it's helpful to recollect on them. But then he goes on to say, recollection of mindfulness of in and out breathing, which we're doing here all the time. Mindfulness of death. Mindfulness immersed in the body. Recollection of stilling. All of these things are always wise and helpful things to pay attention to. This is our practice here, cultivating these wise and helpful things to pay attention to. Guy will often say we should practice being the states we want to cultivate. Practice being happy. Practice being contented. Practice being equanimous. Even if you're quite not quite there yet, incline the mind in those directions and then see what happens. Recognize that we have a choice about our experience and how we're relating to it. And that we can direct our attention again and again to those aspects of our experience that support the deepening of these beautiful qualities, mindfulness and equanimity of peace and calm and wisdom. And know them directly here and now for ourselves. Not just ideas, not with agenda, not with expectation, but just through the wisdom of mindfulness again and again. So let's just sit for a moment, let the words settle.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.